you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do, I want to encourage you to open them to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. It's an honor to be with you today. Matthew 10, we're going to look at verses 1 through 15. Matthew 10, verses 1 through 15. I'm grateful I've got a shorter pulpit here than the last time I was here. Thank you, Dr. Allen. I have to return the favor next time you're at Lenexa and get a taller pulpit for you. Years ago, the city of Pittsburgh constructed a new post office, spent millions of dollars, most technologically advanced post office they'd ever had. The day of the unveiling, all the dignitaries were there. Mayor gave a great speech. However, when the first person arrived, to the embarrassment of the engineers, it was discovered that in a rush to complete the project, they had left out a very important part of the post office, the mail drop. So you got this beautiful building, cost millions of dollars, technologically advanced, but no place to mail a letter. It was a slight omission, but it negated their reason for existence. Matthew 10 is the beginning of the missionary movement of the church. This is the original mission trip. These are the original missionaries. The mission of the church is the sending of people by the local church into the world for the purpose of making disciples. That is our task. That's our mission. When we forget this task, we become a post office without a mailbox. So what does it look like? I don't normally give lists. I'm going to give you one this morning. Just seven essentials, very briefly. All of these things, none of them are revolutionary. You'll know all these things. They're, They're incredibly obvious, but I think it's a good reminder to all of us Today, But let's pray together and then we'll look into this passage. Father, as we come before your word this, this morning, we're just grateful that you've revealed yourself to us, especially when it comes to this great mission. Uh, you've not left us to our own devices to try to figure it out. You've made it very clear to us. And God, I pray today you would illumine these principles and truths of this passage. And God, that we wouldn't just simply be hearers, but we'd be doers also. We'd apply them to our lives. We'd be transformed in the image of Christ that we might be a more effective witness for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think the first thing we see in this passage in verse 1 is the power of our mission. It says in verse 1, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. It says that he summoned them, just a word that means to call to himself. But it's very important that before Jesus sends them out to the world, he first calls them to himself. The same principle applies in our lives. Before Christ draws us out into the world, he first draws us unto himself. That before we advance the gospel, we must abide in Christ. John 15, we all know it, that uh, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The primary key to the success of our mission is abiding in Christ. And when we abide in him, we're able to produce much fruit. That as we abide in Christ, our problem will become, as the disciples quickly realized, it won't be fish, it'll be having too many fish. It won't be fish, it'll be having nets big enough to draw them in. That our God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we could ever think, ask, or imagine for His glory. 
But where does this mission begin? It begins in each of us, individually and corporately, getting alone with God and His Word and in prayer, hearing His voice and obeying what He's commanded us to do. He is our power supply. Not only is He our power supply, but it's clear here He is our authority. It says He gave them authority. Jesus has all authority. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You know, in my short time, about 18 years in vocational ministry, I've realized that almost every one of the problems that a church has faced can be boiled down to an issue of authority. Who has control? Is it the pastor? Is it the deacons? Is it the elders? Is it the congregation? The fact of the matter is there's only one person who has authority in the church, and it's Jesus Christ. Now, we as his people have a lot of authority, the opportunity to exercise a lot of authority, but only in as much as we abide in submission and underneath the authority of Christ. It's very similar to the authority that's delegated to generals from the president. We've even seen this recently. But probably the best example of this was President Harry Truman with General Douglas MacArthur. And and Truman said, you're not going into North Korea. And MacArthur said, what? Well, we'll just see about that. I think I'm going to go. And you remember what Truman said to him. I might just be a haberdasher from Missouri, but I'm still the president of the United States, and you, sir, are fired. He lost the opportunity to have authority because he couldn't abide under the submission and submission to the authority that had been given to him. The same applies with you and me. As we go out to do this mission and this ministry, we have the opportunity to exercise a lot of authority, but only in as much as we abide under Christ. The minute you step out from underneath Christ and start to think you know better than God and you're going to live however you want to live, you lose the right to lead. You lose all authority. We abide under King Jesus. Then we see not only the power, but the second thing we see is the people. In verses 2 through 4, it says, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And we're not going to go into the historical background of each of these men, but the picture is pretty plain. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leadership, they had dropped the ball. They were the educated, they were the elite, they were the trained, and they had failed. They were the blue chips, but now they're being benched because they had become a group of prima donnas. So the blue chips have been replaced, they've been benched for who? Well, now we're putting in the cow chips. We've gone from blue chips to cow chips, we've gone from five stars, we're moving to the walk-ons. These guys here that you see listed, they're untrained, uneducated men, these, are, these guys are not from Yale or Harvard or Cambridge. They're high school dropouts from Oklahoma. And if you're from Oklahoma, get over it. I am too. I know better. These men were the most unlikely candidates for the building of a worldwide missions organization. You know, Billy Graham was once asked, what's the first question you'll ask the Lord? And without hesitation, he said, why me. I don't know about you, but I cannot, for the life of me, figure out why God would want to use me. If I had been God, I would have saved me, set me over the corner and said, sit down, shut up, don't say a word or you'll mess the whole deal up. 
But the beauty is this, is God invites us into his, into his mission for his glory. You know, Dr. Howard Hendricks at Dallas Theological, he was asked by a student on one occasion, why did Jesus choose Judas? And Dr. Hendricks said, I've got a good question for you. Why did he choose you? And then he said, I got an even better question. Why would he choose me? The beauty of Christ's mission is that Jesus uses men and women based on their potential, not on the basis of their problems. That Jesus uses men and women on the basis of their availability, not their ability. You know, you want to do something really cool this afternoon, go home, make a list of all the people who have invested in your life. I've done this on several occasions, and on that list is my dad, my grandfather, my brother, Dr. Gordon Dutille, Dr. J.W. McGorman, Pastor Jay Wolf, Pastor Steve Dighton. But let me tell you about some other folks that you won't know their names. One is Bill Johnson. He was the manager, longtime manager of an Ace Hardware in Montgomery, Alabama. He was the chairman of the personnel committee of my first church, my first vocational ministry position. He mentored me and loved me and showed me what it was and what it meant to love people. There's Bobby Sessions, who was the chairman of the deacons at McGee Road Baptist Church, who took me with him on hospital visits, took me with him on home visits, showed me what it was to love people. There's men like J.D. Stodgill, who was a retired TV repairman in Valley, Alabama, and he deposited so much wisdom in my life as we would sit on a front porch with a glass of sweet tea. There's ladies like um, Faye Henderson. An impoverished woman had a little mill house in Lynette, Alabama, but she invited a group of six of us over to her house every Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. to prayer. She called it sweet hour of prayer. It didn't feel real sweet at 6 a.m., but we saw God move in some powerful ways. You'll never know their names. I'm quite certain every one of those people that I just mentioned in the latter portion right there, none of them had a college degree. But God used them in profound ways. And in the church, all the time, I'll hear people say, well, I'm just not that gifted. I don't have a degree. I can't get in front of big groups. I'm not teaching some great big Bible study class. Folks, here's what I tell them as politely and kindly as I can. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. God made you perfectly. He made you on purpose for a great purpose. He's placed you in a particular community with a particular set of abilities in a particular vocation, and he expects you to make disciples. You know, I've learned more and more that God is not that interested in my success. I don't even think he's that interested in the success of Lenexa Baptist Church. You know what he's really interested in? His glory. And when God takes broken down old vessels like you and me with all our mistakes and failures and uses us to accomplish his glory, guess what happens? His glory radiates from the church. That's the people. Then we see the plan in verses 5 through 6. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any uh, city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Gives the disciples very specific instructions. Go to the Jew first. We know this is God's primary plan. In Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, the Jew first and then for the Greek. 
When Jesus commissioned the disciples in 1.8, he told them to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest parts of the world. His overarching plan is go to the Jew and then the Gentile. They'll come back to the Jew later on, or at least that's my view. That's kind of the 40,000-foot view. Even Paul, you'll remember when he went to the cities, he was the primary missionary to Gentiles, but when he went to the city, where did he go first? He went to the synagogue. That's God's overarching plan. But, but I think there's another principle at play here as well, that the, that the mission always starts at the local level and then moves globally in an outward way. The disciples will primarily be called to reach their own people in their own communities. In fact, it'll be much later in Acts chapter 9 when God kind of has to force them out to go to the four corners of the earth. But the mission necessarily begins at home. I think it was C.T. Studd who said, the light that shines the furthest shines the brightest at home. That the mission starts with our family and our neighbors and our coworkers. We have a global mission that must start in our homes. Coca-Cola, if you've been on a mission trip, I've been in some remote parts of Africa, remote parts of Peru. You know what you can always find? You can almost always find a bottle of Coca-Cola. It's amazing to me. And Coke always tastes better in Africa. That's what I found. You think, how in the world did this company become a universal beverage? You know what? They have a, they have a motto at their local headquarters. It says, think globally, act locally. I thought, boy, that's a good picture of the mission that we've been given that we're to think on a global level of reaching the nations, but it starts in our homes. I really believe at this point in my life that the most important work I do is Saturday morning, I pick up my nephew. I got my, my youngest son who's 12 years old, and we spend an hour of discipleship. We go to breakfast, and we talk it through. I got a 12-year-old who I'm praying will come to faith in Christ. And I know that if I don't start there, all the other work I do doesn't matter. Starts at home, and then it moves out outwardly. Then the proclamation will move quickly here. Very simply, he says in verse 7, as you go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, tell them the Messiah has come. Tell them Jesus has arrived. You know what we do? Very simply, we preach Jesus on the basis of his word. That's what the, the very first Christian sermon, if you will, in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, what does he preach? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he preaches it on the basis of God's Word. We preach Jesus, and we preach Him on the basis of His Word. You all know this. This book is a book about Jesus. You heard the story about the young seminary guy. He goes to his first church. He's going to impress him with all his knowledge. He gets up in the pulpit one Sunday. There's a sticky note up there. It says John 12, 21. He goes home, and he finds the passage, looks it up. You know, it's where the Greeks come to Philip, and they say, Sir, we just want to see Jesus. He said, All right, I get the message. So he starts preaching the Bible and presenting very clearly the plain gospel. Gets up in the pulpit a few weeks later, another sticky note. It's John 20, 20. He goes home and looks it up, and it says, And they saw Jesus, and they rejoiced greatly. Folks, we preach Jesus on the basis of his word. It astounds me how so many preachers get up in the pulpit and talk about a bunch of nothing. And I think God bless them, give them a raise. I don't know how they do it. The beauty of this is we've got the word of God that's living and active. Preach Jesus on the basis of his word, and people can't help but be drawn to it like a moth to a flame. Proclamation. Then the proof, verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely you give. 
Along with their message, they were given the ability to perform divine miracles. The miracles were the, were the demonstration, the proof that the message was of divine origin. We see this at particular points in salvation history. Now, I don't believe today that God gives individuals the specific gift of healing like the Benny Hens of the world. But can God heal? You bet he can. He can do whatever he wants to do. But the question is for us, what, what, what are the miracles that accompany the message of, of salvation and the gospel? And I believe with all my heart, the greatest proof of Christianity has always been the changed lives of those who have placed their faith in Christ. We come to Christ and we're changed, we're transformed, we're, we're, we're new creations. And we're not just different, although we are different, amen. We're a different group of people. We're not just different, though we're better. Christians ought to be the best husbands, the best wives. They ought to have the best marriages. They ought to produce the best kids. They ought to be the best employees. They ought to be the best students. They ought to be the best citizens. My prayer is that the city of Lenexa would say, we can't imagine what it'd be like if that church wasn't over there because they produce the best people in that community. And it's the proof that we've got so many stories. Pastor Chris Williams over at Fellowship Greenwood, um, him and Sean were coaching a baseball team, and this one guy struggling in his marriage just saw their lives, saw how they interacted with their kids, saw how they, they, they interacted with their wives and all this, and he, he was going through marriage. I think I'll go ask those guys. And he went and talked to them. They ended up leading the guy to faith in Christ. His wife came to know the Lord, and now he's planting a church through the Sin Network in New Hampshire. Isn't that awesome? Because he saw the changed lives. Uh, I had a guy that just so happened to walk into Lenexa Baptist Church over a period of time. He came to faith in Christ. We started working on his wife. Will you give your life to Christ? Share the gospel. I'm not ready. She came back a couple months later and says, listen, if the gospel of Jesus Christ could take this guy and transform him into a kind, loving, servant-hearted man of God who joyfully goes to church on weekends, that gospel must be true. That's the proof. It's the changed lives. Then, then the provision, verses 9 through 10, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals of staff for the worker is worthy of his support. He's forcing these guys to rely upon him. And Christ is teaching them that when you, when you set your hand to his plow, he will provide. Maybe not with all you want, but he'll give you what you need to accomplish his mission. I love Philippians, one of my favorite books, but in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, the master passion of his life is what? It's Jesus. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My master passion is Jesus. In chapter 2, it's what? He's behind me. He's my example. Uh, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In chapter 3, he's my goal. Forgetting what lies behind is strained towards what lies ahead. But the question is, if Christ is my master passion, if he's my example, he's my goal, if he's everything I do, if he's all that I live for, then who's going to pay the bills? And then that's why he says in Philippians chapter 4, my God shall supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Listen, you can rest assured. We know this is a church. You say the same thing about this this seminary, you can say the same thing about our denomination. Whatever else may happen, I believe with all my heart, we stay focused on Christ. We're true to him. We're true to his word. We're true to his mission. He'll give us what we need to do the work that we're called to do. We won't lack for what we need. Then the product is what? Verses 11 through 16, whatever city or village you enter, choir who's worthy in it, stay at that house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. The house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it's not, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever's not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. 
sure that as they were reading this, they thought of the Abrahamic covenant. Those who bless you, I'll bless. Curse you, I'll curse. The essential principle is this. As we live on mission for Jesus, there are going to be people who reject us and reject our mission. There are going to be people who receive us, receive the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel. There will also be people who reject. We hear a lot today about peace and unity. Listen, be careful about seeking peace or unity when you have to lay aside the truth or morality. Because that's not true biblical unity or peace. We stay firm on those things. And guess what we do? We let the chips fall where they may. Don't be deceived. Jesus will go on to tell these disciples, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword. You trust in Jesus, you will be separated from the world. It will create division, but it doesn't change what we do. You know, we say this, we have numerical goals at Lenexa Baptist Church, people we want to baptize, people we want to come, but we're always reminded every meeting, I remind them of this, our number one goal is faithfulness gospel. We're going to keep preaching Jesus how, regardless how many people show up. If we start making numerics our goal, then we'll be uh, tempted to compromise the message. Jesus says, don't be deceived. There's going to be folks who reject you. This is it. This is our mission. Our power is Christ. People, it's us. We have a plan. We're going to reach the world and the nations. We're going to start at home. We have a proclamation. Preach Jesus on the base of his word. The proof, change lives. We can trust that Christ will be our provision. And we won't get caught off guard. Some will receive. Some will reject. That's our mission. That's our task. We forget it. We become post office without a mailbox. As we pursue this mission, I'll leave you with this. One of my favorite, I guess it's kind of a poem, written by B.J. Morbitzer. I found it when I was looking at a book. Um, by John Bassanio, he'd included it. It's an encouragement to me as I do this mission. Maybe it'll be an encouragement to you, and then we'll close. It says, I'm a soldier in the army of God. The Lord Jesus is my commanding officer. The Holy Bible is my code of conduct. Faith, prayer, and the word are my weapons of warfare. I have been taught by the Holy Spirit, trained by experience, tried by adversity, and tested by fire. I'm a volunteer in this army, and I'm enlisted for eternity. I will either retire in this army at the rapture or die in this army, but I will not get out, sell out, be talked out, or pushed out. I am faithful, reliable, capable, and dependable. If my God needs me, I'm there. If he needs me in the Sunday school to teach the children, work with the youth, help with adults, or just sit and learn, he can use me because I am there. I am a soldier. I'm not a baby. I don't need to be pampered, petted, primed up, pumped up, picked up, or pepped up. I'm a soldier. No one has to call me, remind me, write me, visit me, entice me, or lure me. I'm a soldier. I'm not a wimp. I'm in my place saluting my king, obeying his orders, praising his name, and building his kingdom. No one has to send me flowers, gifts, food, cards, candy, or give me handouts. I do not need to be cuddled, cradled, cared for, or catered to. I am committed. I cannot have my feelings hurt bad enough to turn me around. I cannot be discouraged enough to turn me aside. I cannot lose enough to cause me to quit. When my Jesus called me into this army, I had nothing. If I end up with nothing, I'll still come out ahead. I will win. My God has and will continue to supply all my need. I'm more than a conqueror. I will always triumph. I can do all things through Christ. The devil cannot defeat me. People cannot disillusion me. Weather cannot weary me. Sickness cannot stop me. Battles cannot beat me. Money cannot buy me. Governments cannot silence me. And hell can't handle me. I'm a soldier. Even death cannot destroy me, for when my commander calls me from this battlefield, he'll promote me to captain and then allow me to rule with him. I'm a soldier in the army, and I'm marching claiming victory. I will not give up. I will not run around. I'm a soldier. 
marching heaven bound. Father, we pray this morning that you would sustain us and strengthen us as we stay faithful to your mission. We pray your continued blessings upon this institution, this seminary, upon its leadership. God, as they stay faithful to your task. In the midst of a changing and fallen world, I pray that we would shine like stars in the universe, holding forth the word of truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.